direct your attention to two passages of Scripture, uh, Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed, or as the vernacular would have been, by the ancient English vernacular, cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And in Mark 15 and verse 15 says, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified to be crucified. You'd be so kind to be seated and give the Lord your undivided attention for the next few minutes. I kind of envied the pastor being able to preach next Sunday when the time changes because if we waited till you come to the pulpit and then fall back an hour, look at all the time you would have. <laughs> like you all wouldn't notice, right? It was while we were uh, in Missouri that I was looking at some posts on Facebook that I come across something that our presbyter brother Dagan posted, and uh, I'd like to share it with you today. I have his permission to share this, so it's okay. He writes on 4319, April 3rd, 2019, the angel of the Lord came to me in a dream. As the angel stood by, he said, I saw the elder Billy Cole teaching in a classroom to what appeared to be high school age Asian students. In the dream, the Lord spoke through Brother Cole and said, as you become sharpened and polished in the subject of Calvary, my death, burial, and resurrection, my spirit will flow forth from Calvary and will do a greater work of sharpening and polishing in you so you will shine for me in a much greater way in this dark world. He went on to write, The closer and more intimate you are with what I have done for sinners at Calvary, the more you will be able to yield yourself to my spirit, and the more I will be released in you and through you to speak to the hurting sinners. The greatest exploits that I will yet do in the earth before my coming will be realized and seen by those who prayerfully revisit in thought and spirit the place of my greatest exploit, my death, burial, and resurrection. To know the cross is to know the fellowship of my suffering. It is to know the power of my resurrection. Know the cross 
and you will know me. Thus saith the Lord. I cannot tell you how these words have changed my life. I cannot even predict to number the untold hours that I've laid awake at night and moved about during the day, meditating, thinking, drawn to the cross that somehow uh, I would be able to live out the very words of our Lord that was revealed to Brother Dagan. The full gospel of Jesus Christ, of course, includes the death of our Lord, his burial in a borrowed tomb, and his resurrection on the third day. However, nothing emotes a stronger and more passionate emotion. Nothing demands such an immediate response as does the message of the cross. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the crowd hung on every word. They were initially captivated by hearing uh, people who had just descended from the upper room on the day of Pentecost speaking in a language that they knew was unfamiliar to the Galileans. And they hung now on every word that came out of the mouth of this man by the name of Peter who stood up among the eleven and, and said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he went through a, a rather quick and succinct history of Israel, bringing them up to that particular time and what they were witnessing on that day. When he got to the part about the cross, the people quickly went from curiosity to conviction. I want to say it again. When he finally got to the part that included the message of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, their curiosity suddenly vanished away and was replaced by conviction. When he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Bible says that they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? The dilemma was now upon them. The message of the cross had been unveiled. Conviction had arrested them, and they knew within themselves, we've got to do something about this, but we don't know what to do. It both amazes me as well as saddens me that the predominant answer to this prevailing question today is that all you have to do is believe. You really don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe. But that's not what Peter said to that crowd. His answer was both quick, abrupt, and succinct. When he said in Acts 2.38, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The first word out of Peter's mouth was a call to repentance. The first word out of this man's mouth who held the keys of the kingdom in his heart and hand was about repentance. Paul would later teach us in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10 that it's godly sorrow that worketh repentance. What causes a man, what causes a woman to repent of their sins before a living God that they've never seen or never heard of before? I'm going to tell you it's godly sorrow that's brought on by the message of the cross. Crucifixion was both violent and it was bloody. A candid description of this horrible ordeal is morally offensive and it causes sensory overload. But the realization that our Lord and our Savior, that the God of creation that was robed in flesh, was crucified specifically for our benefit. It's what gives us the godly sorrow that we need in order to repent. Somewhere, in my imagination at least, deep within the folds of hell, men with demented and corrupt minds devised a means of death that was so cruel that it is unimaginable that it even ever existed. In their state of abject depravity, they nailed their first victim to the strange contraption called a cross, and they watched that individual die a slow and agonizing death. The earliest historical record of the crucifixion dates to 519 B.C. when King Darius I of Persia crucified 3,000 of his political enemies in Babylon. The sadistic act of crucifixion was later adopted by the Hellenists and by Alexander the Great. It eventually made its way into the Roman system of justice who added their own peculiar uh, thing to crucifixion called scourging. They added scourging as if this horrible ordeal was not bad enough. Scourging and crucifixion was meant to inflict the maximum amount of shame and pain and torture upon a human being. During scourging, if I may just take a moment to alert you to what we're talking about here today. During scourging, victims would writhe in pain. They would tremble violently 
and convulse. They would vomit and pass out as they were tied to that whipping post only to be revived so that the procedure could continue. I want you to think about it. That's what they did to our Lord. That's what they did unto Jesus Christ. That's what they did to the Messiah, to the Lamb of God. That's what they did to him. And this was only, of course, the beginning of their ordeal. They would then be required to carry their cross to the very place to the very location to where they would be crucified. It is then that six-inch spikes would be driven into the wrist between the medial nerve, which caused excruciating pain. With their legs drawn up into a 45-degree angle, they would be nailed through their feet unto that cross, and it was strategically done that way so that they would not be able to push themselves up and take air into their collapsing lungs. Within a very few minutes, as it is recorded, uh, the shoulders would be pulled completely out of socket, completely dislocated as the victim of crucifixion would now hang uh, helplessly upon this cross and in just another few minutes their wrists and their elbows would also be pulled out of sockets. It is written that in the shroud of Turin that they've examined that and the arms of Jesus, if you believe that that was the shroud that was placed upon him, the arms of this man that this covered was six to nine inches longer than they would have normally been. I'm talking to you about the cross today. I've come to this congregation to talk to you about the cross today. There's some things about the cross you need to know before we leave this building. I vividly remember a number of years ago coming to church on a Sunday morning my wife will tell you I always was prepared, uh, studious, and prepared to speak uh, at any opportunity. And that morning I came to church and uh, I was in the prayer room and saints of God were praying and the spirit of God was moving in a wonderful way and I heard the Lord speak to me and he simply told me, to tell them about my cross. Oh, but Lord, you don't understand. I've got this message all planned out. I, I, I've been working on this for a long time. I, I'm ready with this. No, you tell them about my cross. And I remember that vividly because I walked up and down these aisles on that Sunday morning and preached about the cross. I was obedient unto the Spirit of God. John 3.16, you can all quote it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We know why God gave his only begotten Son, because he loved us enough. He loved us that much to give his only begotten Son 
but it doesn't say right here what he gave his only begotten son to. That is what I am addressing here today. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10, and this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, sent his son to take our place at the scourging post, sent his son to take our place on the cross, sent his son to bear the judgment of God for all mankind. Isaiah 50 and 6, the prophet wrote, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. I hid my face from shame and spitting. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even, even, even the death of the cross. There were virtually thousands, I would venture to say tens of thousands of crosses that dotted the human landscape over the approximate 600 years that crucifixion, crucifixion was used. And it represents untold suffering of multitudes of people and none of them deserved to die by crucifixion, no matter what they did. But there's only one cross out of all of those crosses that makes a difference for you and I today. And it is the imperishable cross of Jesus Christ. The imperishable cross. He is imperishable. His cross is imperishable. The message of the cross is imperishable. Because it never gets old, it's never outdated, 2,000 years later, it still works as well today as it did back then. It's as powerful, it's as convicting, it's as intimidating, it's just as terrible and awesome and horrible as it was on the day of Pentecost. Paul would write in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed 
of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Throughout the Bible, men and women had encounters with God. They had encounters with angelic beings. They had encounters with archangels, with Gabriel and Michael. They had dreams and visions and many, many opportunities to experience God in very unique ways. And it not only changed their course in life, it changed the course of the world. Just like Brother Dagan woke up one morning and wrote down the dream that he had the night before, it has already altered my life forever. And, and men and women have had these encounters and these experiences from the beginning of time. We preach about Noah because Noah had his ark. Thank God. Everyone should thank God that Noah built an ark to the saving of his household. We preach about Abraham who had his Mount Moriah experience. Praise God. We talk about Moses in the burning bush. What an incredible opportunity it is and blessing to preach about Moses and his burning bush. We could go through a very short list here. Israel had their Mount Sinai. Elijah had his Mount Carmel. Gideon had a dry fleece and a wet fleece. Joseph had his dreams. Jacob had his Bethel. Hannah had her Shiloh. Mary was visited by an archangel. We could go on and on, but when you get to Jesus Christ, the very zenith and apex of his life and ministry was a cross. When you get to God who was manifest in the flesh, the mighty God who was robed in the flesh of a man, the apex of his life, the high point of his existence was not Mount Moriah. It wasn't fire on Mount Carmel. It wasn't a burning bush. It was a cross on Mount Calvary. He would stand before Pontius Pilate and he would declare not only to him but to the whole world for this cause. For this moment right here, Pilate, came I into this world. My goodness, Lord, help us. I dare say that in a few minutes, we're going to talk about some things that may be a little uncomfortable for us if we're not already uncomfortable. Our pastor has been teaching on holiness 
standards, righteous living, proper decorum for dress and appearance, character, behavior according to the word of God. And if you haven't been to the cross, none of what he's preaching would make one bit of difference in your life. It takes a cross. It takes a cross to be willing to follow that teaching pastor. It takes a cross to receive those things in your heart and soul and to practice them as best you can with delight, with joy. Within the musing and meditation of my heart, I asked the Lord why the cross is so seldom preached today. I can tell you that his answer was quick and immediate, and I was totally unprepared. I asked the Lord a lot of things, and he doesn't even answer me at all. But on this particular occasion, Lord, why is it that we seldom preach or hear preaching about the cross anymore? There were four words that came to me, four words that I, I, I did not understand at all, four words I had never heard of before in my life. It was simply his answer was simply the law of familiarity. So being the techie that I am, I reached for Google. And I wonder if Google's ever heard of the law of familiarity. Would you believe it's a thing? It's not some abstract, out there, bizarre, on the fringes thing either. What I discovered is that the law of familiarity is a concept that is taught and understood within the realm of, I, I don't mean to be weird here, but cognitive psychology. I'm not talking about paranormal stuff here. I'm talking about trying to understand why we do the things that we do. The clinical definition is rather complex, but the simple version is as follows. The law of familiarity is a psychological phenomenon that alters your ability to feel gratitude and the ability Ability to perceive the situation for what it is. In its simplest form, the law of familiarity states that when you get exposed to a certain person, thing, place, or even action for enough time, you become familiar with it. When you become familiar with that certain person, Thing, place, or action, your appreciation dies down. Not my words. Guess what? This happens to everyone. Everyone is subject to the law of familiarity. And it 
can affect and does affect every area of our lives. The law of familiarity can greatly affect and does greatly affect our relationships. It affects our career, the way that we view our possessions. It affects our motivation for a certain repetitive action. And when you become aware of the law of familiarity, then you can look into the Word of God and you can see how it affected the children of Israel and others in the Bible. It provides us with an explanation, whether valid or not. It is an explanation as to why Israel was unable to fulfill faithful, lawful, legal worship according to the laws of God for any distinct length of time because the repetition of it, because it was so repetitive. They were so engrossed in a time of revival and tearing down the altars of Baal and restoring worship to the one true God that after a while they just got, they just got so familiar with it. It's not exciting anymore. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't breed excitement in us anymore. It's just, it's just the same old, same old. It happens to apostolic worshipers. It happens to apostolic people. It happens to apostolic prayer warriors. It happens to intercessors. It happens to worship teams. It happens to ministries and to preachers. It's called the law of familiarity. So we don't preach the cross because since it doesn't move us anymore, we don't think that it will have any effect on anybody else. Perhaps you have heard the ancient proverb that states familiarity breeds contempt. I thought somebody might finish that for me. So before you dismiss what I'm saying, have you noticed how the worship team will bring a certain new song and it blows the ceiling off of this place. Man, I mean, it, it's like an explosion. And they, But after a month or so, they sing that same song, and where's the explosion? Where's, where's the power we felt the first, second, third time that we sang that song? Where are the aisle runners and the dancers and the praisers? You know, what's going on here? It's called the law of familiarity. So Brother Dagan recorded the words that God spoke to him in his dream and said, to know the cross is to know the fellowship of my suffering. It is to know the power of my resurrection. Know the cross and you will know 
me, saith the Lord. I understand at least to, in my small way of grasping things, that we're living in the end time and that this is supposedly, as it is promoted to us, the age of spiritual warfare. I understand that and why we need to be engaged in spiritual warfare, but God is calling us back to the cross. God says you can take your armor off for a while. You can, you can lay your sword down for a while. It'll be all right. I'm calling you back to the cross. 1 Corinthians 2 and 2, Paul wrote, For I am determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Have you ever wondered why Paul was so obsessed with preaching the cross? Perhaps we made the assumption, well, it was because we were commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. But that's not it. There's more to the story than that. Out of all the other apostles, Paul is the only one that we see, at least, that was so obsessed with preaching the cross. He said, I don't want to know anything else among you save the cross of Jesus Christ. He would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. I mean, in a world that that's sick with disease, in a world that's infested by corruption, deceit, ungodliness, violence, immorality, things that are, that, are, that are destroying the very fabric of society. Why would we introduce a cross? What good will the message of the cross do with all of the problems facing America? That's the way the world thinks. So the preaching of the cross to them who's trying to solve all these problems without God when in fact it's without God that created those problems. The preaching of the cross to them is foolish but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. I'm not here to attempt, nor do I even want to suggest that we dismiss the power of the Holy Ghost, but Paul's talking about a power that we have moved away from. So why was he so obsessed with the cross? Saul of Tarsus, as he was called before his conversion, was a Pharisee of Pharisees by his own words. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a committed Pharisee. He had drank the Pharisaical Kool-Aid. His lips were purple. He was in it up to his very neck. He was a member, therefore, of the sect of Pharisees that was directly responsible for the crucifying 
of Jesus Christ. He was convinced as they were that Jesus was a charlatan and that he was a fraud. You want to know why people are turning on Christianity today? Because they believe it's, it's all a fraud and a lot of it is. The personal gratification that he felt seeing Jesus nailed to his cross was palpable. And he had dedicated his life after Jesus' death through the extermination of every man, woman, and child who made the false claim that he had risen from the dead. He was determined to remove every one that claimed to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and his means of removing them was death and imprisonment. In Acts chapter 9 is where this leads us to, where in verse 1 it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And God only knows what waited for them in Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? So Saul replies in verse 5, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. We can only try to imagine the shock and awe that was in Saul's heart at that particular moment. Who are you again? I am Jesus. I'm the voice of that charlatan that you crucified. I'm the voice of that deceiver that you crucified. Verse 6, he trembling and astonished said, Lord, <laughs> day of Pentecost, what shall we do? Trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord told him to arise and go into the city. It shall be told thee what thou must do. Saul's response on the road to Damascus was very similar to the disciples who knelt tearfully at the foot of the cross. It's the same for all who were led to the imperishable cross of Christ. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? So from the moment of Paul's conversion 
which did not take place, by the way, on the road to Damascus. It took place in the city of Damascus where he abode in a street called Straight, where Ananias came into him and prayed for him that he would receive his sight, baptized Saul in the name of Jesus Christ, and Saul received the gift of the Holy Ghost as it was promised on the day of Pentecost. Praise the Lord. And from that moment on, with the same determination with which he sought to exterminate the people of God, he would preach the cross like nobody else had ever preached it. He would preach it everywhere he went. He would preach it in every house that he entered into. He would preach it in every city that he entered into. He would preach the cross with the same ardent zeal and passion with which he pursued believers in Jesus Christ. But the question remains suspended as it were in the very air. How do we answer the call to return to the cross? I did not come with a question without having the answer. How do we break? How do we violate? How do we cast off this this law of familiarity, this law that plagues the human race, that, that holds the church back and holds the church down? How do we break free from this, this, this law that what we become familiar with loses its value and its awe and its amazement? How do we overcome this present human affliction? For me, the answer was expressed in Brother Dagan's dream. The closer, more intimate you are with what I've done for sinners at Calvary, the more you will be able to yield yourself to my spirit and the more I will be released in you and through you to speak to the hurting sinners. But our beloved Apostle Paul was put... Uh, into e, the eternal language of the Spirit, the following. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. You do understand that the Lord is asking us to remember something that we were never a witness to. We're being asked to remember this horrible ordeal, this sacrifice that was made on our behalf, and yet we never saw what those early disciples saw. We never saw the blood running down the cross and pulling on the ground beneath. We never heard the groans of our Savior. We never felt the pangs and the pain of that suffocating atmosphere as he hung on the cross. Verse 25, after the same manner also he took the cup and when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Every time that I've ever had the privilege of partaking of the Lord's Supper or communion, as we refer to it, I have prayed deeply beforehand that uh, the cross would get into me, that his sacrifice, it wouldn't just be a ceremony uh, that we're going to go through for a few minutes and then go home, but I've always prayed, God, let this, let, let, let me experience the cross like they did. Let me experience the cross as those people did the day that you were crucified. I, I don't want to just eat the unleavened bread and drink the cup and feel nothing or just feel a little overshadowing of the sacrifice that you made. I want this to get inside of me. I want this to become a part of me. I'm not really sure at this point what the Lord wants me to say to you, but I know that we must somehow make our best effort to make our way back to the imperishable cross of Jesus Christ because that is where every revival that's ever took place began. You see, we can't lead others to where we have not gone ourselves. I can't lead you to some place I went to 48 years ago. I've got to lead you to some place where I am today. You understand that? Then in order for us to affect our world, in order for us to move sinners in this building, we have got ourselves, we must ourselves go back to the cross because that is what they need. Psalms 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I want you to understand that the hardest sinners, the hardest soldiers of Rome that witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was broken by what they saw that day. We don't just will ourselves into a state of brokenness and contrition. It takes something like the cross to rend that within us, to wring us out to the point that there's nothing left within us. We are broken. We have suspended ourselves in a state of contrition. And if we're to live after this day, it'll only be by his grace and by his mercy. When you consider all of the complaining of the 12 disciples, consider their jostling constant, by the way jostling for position. When you take into consideration their doubt, 
the perpetual, persistent unbelief, even though they were walking every day with Jesus Christ. It appears at least that Jesus had really very little influence upon them. After three and a half years, hearing every parable, every message, seeing him clear the temple of the money changers, cast out devils, raise the dead, heal the sick, bring Lazarus. After everything they heard and said, they were still complaining. They were still afraid, full of fear. They still felt a sense of superiority, one between another. So I'm going to say it today. If you've got a problem in your home, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, and children, I'm sorry, the best counselor in the world cannot help you. But if you will bring these things to the foot of the cross, it has to be all parties. It can't just be one or two. It has to be all parties involved must come and bow and yield at the cross. If you look around you right now and you're full of fear and anxiety, what's going to happen? Where's America going? What's our future going to be like if you're filled with fear and anxiety? I can only tell you that you can't just cast it out. You can't take medicine for it. Moments of joy are fleeting and quickly leave and the fear and anxiety comes back. But if you will take those deep-seated feelings and emotions to the cross, at the cross, everything else vanishes. If the cares of life have caused you to become drunk, in your pursuit of wealth and stuff and things, the cross will sober you up. The cross, speaking of spiritual warfare, is where kingdoms collide. The Bible says that Jesus defeated principalities and powers, making a show of them openly. How and when did he do that? At the cross. Go ahead and do your worst. Go ahead and kill me. Go ahead and, and shed every drop of my blood. The grave will only hold me for three days. The grave will not keep me down or keep me back. Go ahead and scourge my body and drive nails into my hands and feet and I'll prove to you that you will never defeat me. Kingdoms collide at the cross, but only one emerges victorious and that is the kingdom of almighty God. The cross is where men and women are prepared for ministry. 
at the foot of the cross and there's only one cross that counts. It's the imperishable cross of Jesus Christ. It is the cross where the Lamb of God was crucified. And everything that seems so important to you now, if you will bring that to the cross, it will very quickly fade into non-importance. It will melt away into one single priority, and that is the will of God. Musicians, would you join me in worship team? I got it, brother. I got it. I told him if I forgot for him to do this for me because I know me. I'm going to close momentarily and speak a word to you about the lion in the lamb. It's written in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1, and when they drew nigh to Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her, and uh, loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell you the daughter of Zion, Behold thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and they set him thereon. When Jesus approached John the Baptist while John was baptizing in the Jordan River, Uh, The Spirit of the Lord came on this prophet, and John said very loudly and boldly, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. We just read how this Lamb of God made his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem, sitting on the back of an ass or a donkey. And one week after this is when he was maliciously slain and crucified. The disciples were not just overwhelmed by grief. They loved their Lord, believe me. They were joined to him at the hip. But they were not just overwhelmed by grief. They were shocked to their very core 
that this man that walks on water calms the storms, casts out devils, and raises the dead could even be killed. They were shocked that he would die because they had expectations of something completely different. They accepted and they acknowledged and followed Jesus not as the lamb that he was declared to be. They accepted and followed Jesus making up their own minds to promote him prematurely to the prophetic position of lamb of the tribe of Judah. Jesus constantly was telling them who he was, but they didn't hear it. Listen to me. Jesus told them, told them that he was going to die. But they didn't believe it when it came out of his mouth. We hear preaching not from the mouth of Jesus, but from the mouth of men. How much less do we make up our own minds what we're going to believe in spite of what is preached through the spirit of prophecy and the word of God? Peter draws his sword several hours before daylight just on the edge of the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, well, Peter, put your sword away. You see, they were ready and willing to fight to the death. We'll die right here defending you, Lord. So he and the other disciples were willing to follow Jesus in the battle because that's what they thought he was going to lead them to. But when Jesus commanded Peter to put his sword away, that's when the disciples became flushed and confused. So in much the same way, people today are looking for the lion when what they need is the lamb. They want to hear about the lion that will save me from my problems and save me from life's situations. They want the lion of Judah to swoop in and save them from all of their problems. But the message Jesus said to preach did not include, it was not about the lion. The message is about Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse can stand with me, please. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. 
And he had a name that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We rejoice in the promise that our Lord will return to the city of Jerusalem riding upon a white steed followed by an army dressed in white, riding white horses at his very side. His vesture will be dipped in blood. His name that will be written upon his thigh and upon his vesture is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When is that going to happen? Say, well, you just stepped in it now, preacher, because nobody knows. Oh, I beg to differ with you. The Bible says that Israel, when they look upon him whom they pierced, when they receive the sweeping revelation concerning the cross of Jesus Christ, there is national brokenness and contrition as they turn to the Lamb of God. As they turn nationally to the Lamb of God, that's when the lion is going to show up. The lion's waiting for them to acknowledge the Lamb that they slew. He's just sitting there waiting for them to look upon him who they pierce, he's ready to emerge as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here we are today. He wants to rise up. He wants to get up. He wants to part the waters before his church. He wants to manifest his power and his glory. He wants to follow the word with signs and wonders and miracles. All we have to do Let's go back to the cross. All we have to do is return to the cross and take it in again, drink it in. Let it saturate us. Let it break through our wills. Let it tear through our sorrows and griefs about things in this life that doesn't mean anything. All we have to do is go back into that abject darkness of the cross where even light cannot penetrate and see what God wants us to know in that austere place at the foot of the cross.
feel like we need to just close our eyes right now and just be patient and not get in a big hurry. Give God time to deal with us. Aha! Aha! Oh, yes, God. Give it a moment to creep into your soul what God is speaking to us today. Give it a moment to get under the veneer of our determination to just do our own thing until we break and crumble before him. Paul said, when I preached the cross to you Galatians, you would have plucked out your eyes if I had asked you to, but now you've gotten away from the cross and now you question everything and now you want to know the reason for this and the reason for that. Galatians, you got to get back. You got to go back to the cross. Because that's where you were pliable in the hand of God. That's where you would receive teaching about righteous living and holiness standards and godliness and so on. It's only at the cross. If you only pursue the line of duty, you are missing the value. We have now moved from curiosity and from excitement under conviction. Ah, Would you bring that? with you to this altar. Would you bring that hope to this altar? Would you bring that brokenness to this altar? Would you come and kneel as it were at the foot of the imperishable cross of Jesus Christ? and let him wash over you and let him cleanse you. Let his blood cover you. He's called us to come back to the cross. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. God, make it so that we are receptive again. Make it so that we're willing to follow leadership. The word of God, the teaching of the apostles, make it God so that we will not, we will not fight against these things, but we will yield ourselves to them gleefully, gladly, willingly. Let the cross do its work right here.
at the cross do what it's supposed to do right here. It's not about a moment. It's not about a few minutes. It's, it's about changing courses. It's about, it's about renewing. It's about restoration. It is a divine call from God that rests upon us right now to be where we are in this moment, preparing us for perhaps the greatest revival the world has ever seen because when they walk through our doors while they come to hear about a lion we're going to tell them about the lamb and the story we'll tell will not just be some ancient one that we read in the scriptures it'll be a story about recent days and recent times that we spent with our Lord and Savior, witnessing, drinking it in, absorbing his suffering into our very soul so that we can be the light and we can be the salt that this world so desperately needs. My God, my God.